It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Because you come to this podcast for all the important news, we are not going to disappoint you. We're going to talk about the one story that everybody in the world is focused on. And that, of course, is the story of Alec Baldwin's wife. What a strange, bizarre tale this thing is. But I'm not going to uh, eat up the time at the beginning here. We'll Stay tuned. We will get to it in all its uh, tabloid glory. Uh, because we have right now uh, news from the breaking tweet desk. President Trump, who has been, you know, shattering tweet records uh, with his constant missive of uh, statements, mostly about the election, has this one this morning. The Wall Street Journal's very boring and incoherent editorial fails to mention my big and easy wins in Texas, Florida, Ohio, Iowa, and many other states that the Wall Street Journal and other joke polls said I would lose. Okay, so I don't know exactly what editorial has got the president exercised. Uh, I don't recall seeing uh, any poll by any news organization saying that Donald Trump was going to lose Texas. I do remember a poll saying, you know, Biden was in within a few percentage points. I never took that hype seriously. I don't recall seeing any poll saying that Donald Trump was going to lose Ohio. Uh, I suppose there might be an outlier there somewhere. Uh, Here's another one from the president's uh, tweet storm uh, today. Uh, I love the great state of Georgia. Where just coincidentally, uh, next week there will be uh, two Senate runoffs that will decide control of the United States Senate. But the people who run it, from the governor, Brian Kemp, to the secretary of state, both Republicans, are a complete disaster, says Donald Trump, and don't have a clue or worse. Nobody can be this stupid. Just allow us to find the crime and turn the state Republican. Now, I just... just Pause on that for a minute. I don't think the president meant it it to come out with this kind of tone, but just isolate that phrase. Just allow us to find the crime. Doesn't that sort of kind of sound like he's saying, let us do whatever we want. We'll find the crime. And in other words, it's like backward logic reasoning. And then we will find that I actually won the state, despite the fact that every count has shown Uh, that Joe Biden had a narrow win in the state of Georgia. And just maybe by sheer happenstance, uh, yesterday, the uh, Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, one of the Republicans who Trump referenced in his piece, put out a press release saying there had been an audit uh, signature review in Cobb County, a key county that Biden won by 14 points. And the election board found a 99.9% accuracy rate in performing correct signature verification procedures. So I guess at least in Cobb County, the Trump forces won't be allowed to find the crime. Now, it's interesting that the president going off on this uh, Wall Street Journal editorial, because the paper, uh, as you most uh, probably know, uh, is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also owns Fox News, and who also owns the New York Post. Because the New York Post, which for four years has been a staunch supporter of President Trump. I know there's been a a change at the top of the uh, editorial leadership there and Carl Allen, uh, Australian guy, tabloid guy who ran the Post for many years, left, came back. Uh, Well, he departed toward the end of this year. By the way, one more day after today in 2020. So we're coming to the end of our 2020 podcast here. Uh, But the paper's gotten a bit tougher and here is one of those patented tabloid front page editorials. And the headline in the conservative New York Post is, Mr. President, Stop the Insanity. 
Uh, it goes on to say, uh, the headline on the, on the page one says, you lost the election. Here's how to save your legacy. And here's some of the, I mean, you would think this was written by the most liberal website you could possibly dig, in, dig up. It's time to end this dark charade, says the Post. In other words, you're cheering for an undemocratic coup. The whole idea of Trump and January 6th and they're going to overturn the results. And I'll get to that in more detail in a moment. You had every right to investigate the election, says the New York Post. But let's be clear. Those efforts have found nothing. Also from the Post, Sidney Powell is a crazy person. Michael Flynn suggesting martial law is tantamount to treason. It is shameful. Democrats will try to write you off as a one-term aberration, and frankly, you're helping them do it. The King Lear of Mar-a-Lago, ranting about the corruption of the world. If you insist on spending your final days in office threatening to burn it all down, that will be how you are remembered, not as a revolutionary, but as the anarchist holding the match. First of all, I just have to say, I love tabloids. And I grew up, when I was a kid, I delivered the New York Post. And it was the first newspaper I really sort of got into, a great sports section and all that. But for the New York Post editorial page, to turn on Donald Trump with that kind of fiery language, because, you know, the people who support Trump will think it's all the liberal media, it's, you know, the, the, the Justice Department is in the tank, the courts are in the tank, the judges aren't really hearing the evidence. I mean, all the stuff you hear from people who believe Donald Trump, that there was widespread fraud in this election, you know, as more people. I mean, look, Mitch McConnell says Joe Biden is the president-elect. So as more people, you know, recognize reality as we're now about three weeks out, uh, from the Biden presidency, and then, you know, what are they going to say now? Well, the New York Post. New York Post has gone to the dark side. I, I, you know, it, it, it's not, it's surprising to me that the New York Post used such strong language on the election front. Now, there's a lot more to get to here, so let's just move on. Uh, the January 6th business. I made reference to. Here's the lead from the Washington Post. President Trump and his allies are growing increasingly desperate. It's a new story as Congress prepares to formally receive the votes that will confirm his election loss next week, filing lawsuits against non-existent entities and even Trump's own vice president as they try to come up with new ways to overturn the vote. So the first reference is to a lawsuit uh, filed by a conservative group, uh, a pro-Trump group, that targeted, among others, the Electoral College, which does not exist as a permanent body. You can't sue the Electoral College. It's just a bunch of electors that every four years uh, from the 50 states meet in the state capitals and, and almost without exception, there's always like a few rogues, uh, cast their ballots for whoever won that state. The other loss that you've probably heard about, Congressman Louis Gohmert, Texas Republican, and several Arizona Republicans joining the suit, they're suing Mike Pence. They're suing Vice President Pence. Uh, so they're asking a court to force Pence to use his power as VP to affect the outcome. Now, the, first of all, Pence doesn't have any power as VP. It's a procedural role. On January 6th, as the president of the Senate, the vice president um, presides over the session that hears the report of the Electoral College. And by the way, Al Gore did this and ruled that he had lost the election in 2000. Um, Joe Biden in 2017 presided over the session that said that Donald Trump had won the election uh, and not Hillary Clinton. Um, and in the lawsuit, it, it was disclosed that Gohmert and company had gone to Pence 
and tried to get him to voluntarily join with them, and Pence said no. So I don't see this going anywhere, but it's going to get a lot of coverage next week, I'll tell you that. Meanwhile, now we get into COVID relief, but this is like the perfect media story because it not only deals with COVID relief, it deals with election fraud. So you'll recall um, President Trump just got absolutely positively pounded by the media for not signing uh, the $900 billion COVID aid bill on Christmas Eve. And in doing so, you know, uh, threw the whole process into doubt, threw the capital into chaos, held up the unemployment benefits for about 10 million workers, uh, all the things that were in there, aid to small businesses, and the $600 stimulus checks. He came out and he said, we must have $2,000 stimulus checks. And then he caved. And I say caved because with one day to go, the president signed the bill, the same bill that he could have gotten, that he could have signed five days earlier. He didn't get one change. He got a bunch of like the Senate and the House will look at the possibility of election fraud, blah, blah, blah. You know, nobody committed to anything. So, but he did change the politics of the moment. So since then, Nancy Pelosi's house and the Democrats love the idea of $2,000 stimulus checks. They just couldn't get McConnell and company to go for it. They couldn't get Steve Mnuchin to go for it. But now the question is, what is the Senate going to do? If, in my view, if President Trump had gotten personally involved, deeply involved in calling, let's say, Republican senators during the time that Congress was debating this bill, which was weeks and weeks and weeks, I think he probably could have moved enough Republican senators that the Senate would have gone for the $2,000. I, I don't know if you could have gotten to 60 then if you faced a potential filibuster, but I think you could have gotten to a majority. So what does Mitch do? Well, yesterday, McConnell blocked an attempt by the Democrats uh, to hold an immediate vote on jacking those stimulus checks up to 2000 I mean, the other law has already passed. So um, they, people are getting 600 I mean, This is if you're at a level, uh, it phases out at $99,000 a year. It starts to reduce at about seventy-five dollars um, So the fate of the measure is unclear. So here's Trump, you know, going around $2,000. We need $2,000. In fact, speaking of tweets, here's another one from the POTUS. Uh, unless Republicans have a death wish, and it is also the right thing to do, <laughs> they must approve the $2,000 payments ASAP. $600 is not enough, all caps. Okay, so... Here's what McConnell is doing. First of all, he blocks the vote, which he has the power to do as majority leader. You know, Chuck Schumer says, let's have the vote immediately. Of course, nobody thought Mitch was going to do that. But he introduced separate legislation that combined three things. $2,000 checks. Okay. Uh, getting rid of that Section 230, the uh, legal immunity for Facebook, Twitter, and other social media giants. Okay. And election security. So this is what's known in legislative parlance as a poison pill. So McConnell is under a lot of pressure, right? His own president says, you got to do this. People want the money. The media are all behind it. So he's, look, I'm all for $2,000 checks. You just got to vote for a bill that also includes looking at election fraud. Knowing full well the Democrats are not going to do that. There's no way they're going to do that and cast... Uh, a further shadow over the Biden presidency. So what the bill would do, and I don't know if this is just a kind of a maneuver on Mitch's part. I don't think he thinks that this can pass. He knows it can't pass. Um, exploring further ways to protect the sanctity of American ballots. Create a bipartisan commission to study election practices that strengthen and that undermine the integrity of, of the election, like mail-in ballots, which Trump has been complaining about 
for about a year. So you put that in there, and then maybe a couple of your senators, like the two Georgia senators who are up next week, they vote for it so they can tell their constituents, hey, we cast our, our votes for a $2,000 stimulus check, but knowing full well the bill won't pass because it's got these other poison pills. That's how Congress works. That's the kind of games they get played. In fact, speaking of David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, both of whom, if you, it's very hard to poll special elections, but from what we understand, they look both to be tight races. And just as a reminder, uh, if the Republicans win one of those two races, they maintain control of the Senate. The Democrats would have to take both, which I continue to believe is unlikely. Suddenly, they're seeing the light. They now say, as of yesterday, they support $2,000 stimulus checks to help people uh, because of the impact of COVID on the economy. Well, let's roll back the tape a little bit to just August. Uh, David Perdue goes on PBS NewsHour. He says he's opposed to any direct payments. Not only does he not want $2,000 checks, he doesn't want $600 checks. He doesn't want $1 checks. He thinks that tax incentives are a more effective way of like stimulating the economy. All right, you know, that's his position. But totally flips now because he needs Trump, who's going to campaign for both of those Georgia senators the night before uh, those January 5th runoffs. Uh, as for Kelly Loeffler, she hasn't had much to say about uh, stimulus checks at all. Then she told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution just last week she would endorse the increase only if it repurposes wasteful spending. In other words, you've got to go back into the bill. This is before the bill was signed. Take out the stuff that, that the Republicans don't like or that Trump doesn't like or arguably is pork. And then she'd, she'd endorse it. But that's not her position anymore because these are tight races and you don't want ads run against you. This senator doesn't even want you to get your $2,000. So... That's the latest. I think it may be decided today in the Senate or, you know, they could end up staying uh, through New Year's, which is going to, let's just say, piss them off. But we're only in the middle of a pandemic, folks. Uh, and it's only, you know, in ex you know, the politics aside, this is an extremely important question. Uh, I happen to think that $600 is not going to do much. It's better than nothing. If President Trump had never raised the 2000 and just signed the bill on Christmas Eve, everybody would be hailing it as well. At least it's something. It should have been larger. But now you get the aid, the loans to small businesses. You get the eviction protections. Um, you get um, all kinds of other measures to try to help people who are in dire need. It's really something. Speaking of COVID, uh, Joe Biden gave a little speech yesterday. And he really went after the Trump administration on the speed of vaccine distribution, which has been really troubling. I mean, we we're all so thrilled and excited that Pfizer and Moderna had both of these uh, drug companies had their vaccines approved. But they're not coming out too quickly or they're not getting into the arms of Americans who need them. So Biden gives this speech. And, you know, I remember back, who can forget, last February, March, when the president was saying, you know, it's like the flu and it'll go away by April and certainly by the summer and all that stuff. Well, Biden has taken the opposite approach. He's offering a very sober and even dark warning about what's going to happen in the coming winter months. Um, he said in this speech, this will be a very tough period for our nation. And he asked Americans to make sacrifices, quoting Biden. It's going to take all the grit and determination we have as Americans to get it done. He said that if the current pace of administering vaccines under Trump continues, it's going to take years, not months, to vaccinate the nation. And he had his team, he told his team to, 
to start planning a more aggressive effort when he takes office to move heaven and earth and get us going in the right direction. So um, earlier in December, federal officials came out and said that their goal was that by the end of this year, 20 million people will at least get their first shots. Remember, you need two shots of the vaccine. As of Monday, 11.4 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have been sent out across the country. But, and this is a very sad but, just 2.1 million people in the U.S. have received their first dose. So here we are down to the next to last day of the year. The aspiration, the goal have been 20 million people getting their first shots and only 2 million have gotten that. So here's the inevitable Trump tweet. I mean, Trump, who just days earlier had been, you know, saying this is a great success, Operation Warp Speed, and I've given him credit repeatedly, but this has hit a serious, serious um, speed bump. Now Trump is tweeting, it's up to the states to distribute the vaccines once brought to the designated areas by the federal government. Well, there's something to that. The states do play a significant role, uh, but could the federal government be doing more? Um, you know, I hope that this is just, you know, difficulties with the initial rollout. But what some people are saying is, you know, there's such an effort to control who gets it and in what order. And I understand that. I'm totally in support of uh, frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, people who work in medical centers, people who are being exposed to sick patients every day, of them being first and elderly people living in nursing homes where so many tragically have died of them being first, I get it. But the counter-argument now is with only 2 million people getting this out of the 11 million doses that have been sent out, the counter-argument is, well, maybe if you just threw open the doors and let anybody get it, at least you'd, get, you'd, you'd speed up the process rather than you know, having to check the paperwork and everything. I'm not, I, I haven't thought this through. I'm not saying that's a great idea, but if we're, by the middle of January, if we're still at, you know, only two, three, four million, you consider the 330 million Americans in this country, maybe we have to shift gears, at least vaccinate as many people as possible. Obviously, the most vulnerable populations should be vaccinated first, but this is they've got to do better. The state's got to do better. The county's got to do better. And the feds have to do better. And look, one of the reasons that Biden is giving this speech. And for one thing, you know, he's taking on, he's about to assume the burdens of the presidency and he wants to set expectations and he also wants to, you know, uh, much more aggressively push people to wear masks and all that. But part of it is political cover. If he comes out now and blames the Trump administration for botching the rollout of the vaccines, then in two, three, four months, if it's not going so well, he could say, look, I inherited a mess, the previous administration. Look, Donald Trump himself, when the pandemic hit, tried to blame the Obama administration um, with mixed results, I would say. It's a classic political tactic. Uh, so that's, I don't want to say that's the only reason that Biden is doing this, but it is an element, of course. A little bit more from the president-elect. Uh, Biden said we could see a return to normalcy in the next year. But he also said the next few months could be the toughest during this entire pandemic. I know it's hard to hear, but it's the truth. We need to steal our spines for what's ahead. Well, you know, if it's bad news, then it's part of a leader's responsibility. And look, you also don't want to overpromise; you want to underpromise. So if uh, he ends up doing better than expected on the vaccine front and the death toll comes down, new cases come down, well, then you've exceeded expectations. But he did set this goal of 100 million doses, which is basically 50 million people, by the end of the first 100 days of his presidency. And so that's a marker, I'm sure, that he will be held to. 
Uh, meanwhile, I looked at the numbers, and you know, during this vacation period, this holiday period, I should say, um, the reporting is not always as good. But looking at yesterday's numbers, back up to 200,000 daily cases, back up to over 3,000 uh, deaths per day. And that's one of the reasons the numbers keep going up. I mean, the total number, the last number I saw for total American deaths, 338,000. And let's face it, we've all become numb to this. When it was 50,000, we couldn't believe it. When we reached that 100,000 milestone, it was just seemed like such a tragedy. But as it has crept up to 150 and 200 and 300, I mean, the number is so large, um, it's, it's, it almost becomes abstract. And that's the thing, which is, um, you know, every single one of these deaths is a tragedy. Every single person who dies from COVID-19 has a family and friends and colleagues who love that person. And, of course, the media have to report the overall numbers, but it just is getting to the point where it's just hard to wrap your head around this kind of death toll. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. And by the way, not to brighten your day any further, but it was reported yesterday uh, in Colorado that the first known case in the U.S. of a person inf infected with this variant of the coronavirus, this mutated version, we're still in so much we don't know. I know it's pretty hot and heavy in the U.K. So much we don't know uh, whether or not the existing vaccines can treat this. But the first person in uh, Colorado, the first American, has now gotten this variant that has been circulating across much of the United Kingdom, where, by the way, they just approved the AstraZeneca University of Oxford vaccine. So that's good. There's now a third vaccine. Obviously, that will go to people uh, in uh, the United Kingdom first. But down the road, maybe, you know, the U.S. and other countries can buy some of that. And another sad development, talking about how the, these people are not statistics. I don't know. This one sort of got to me. Somebody died yesterday. His name was Luke Letlow. He's a Republican who had just been elected to Congress from Louisiana's 5th District. So here's a guy, I don't know anything about him, but obviously he wanted a political career. He ran for the House. He won. He would have taken his seat next week. He's 41 years old, and he died from complications from COVID-19. Um, you know, it's not, it's not that, you know, his death is more important than somebody else's death. You are father, your grandmother, your aunt, your best friend. Um, but it's just something so striking about it in addition to the fact that, you know, he apparently was relatively healthy. He was only 41 and he'd just been elected to Congress. And you look at the number of world leaders that have gotten it. President Trump, Macron in France, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, and, and, and several others. You know, obviously when you're the leader of a country, it's hard to completely self-isolate. Um, but it just shows you that uh, it, it can be hard. It can be really hard. And if you're in politics, you know, you got to go out and people don't shake hands these days anymore. But, you know, the equivalent of, you know, going to crowds, and even if you put on your mask, it can be hard. Also yesterday, uh, Kamala Harris on live television uh, got the vaccine, as did her husband, Doug Emhoff. So now the incoming president and vice president has gotten the shot, as has the incumbent vice president. President Trump has not gotten it. He has not made himself a priority. Of course, since he already had COVID-19, he is thought to be immune. But each one of these uh, getting televised coverage, and I think that's great because we need to set examples for those who surveys show, and there are more Republicans than Democrats, uh, have some reluctance to take this vaccine. 
if a whole bunch of Americans, if tens of millions of Americans says, no, no, I'm not doing it. By the way, the side effects have been minimal. Yes, every once in a while you read about some odd case where somebody had a severe reaction. But by and large, it seems to be, you know, headaches or you're really tired for a couple of days. I mean, nothing that would match uh, the severity of COVID-19. And so there really is a public education job to be done here. And leaders have to play their part to convince people that these two vaccines, the ones that have been approved on an emergency basis by our FDA, are safe and effective. And you're not just protecting yourself if you go get this shot or these shots. You're protecting the people in your family. You're protecting the people in your workplace. You're protecting the people you come into contact with when you go to the grocery store, the supermarket. So I think we'll see a heavy focus on that. All right, now as promised, a little bit of a lighter fare here having to do with, this is hilarious, Hilaria Baldwin. She is Alec Baldwin's wife, and she's big on Instagram. And so, you know, because she's married to this uh, famous actor who had his four-year run on SNL playing Donald Trump, and because he often gets into scrapes with people, you know, he's got, let's just say, a little bit of a temper. Uh, She has become famous too. It turns out, that she has not been telling the entire truth about her background. Her actual name is Hillary Hayward Thomas. Hillary Hayward Thomas, not Hilaria. Uh, she was mostly known as this yoga instructor, and she has a podcast on lifestyle, who got married back in 2012 to Alec, who was then on 30 Rock. Uh, um, and by the way, this started on page six, but now there are these big write-ups in the New York Times. I'm reading here from the Washington Post. This is international news, folks. The pair met the previous year at a Manhattan restaurant where, as Hilaria once told the New York Times, Alec walked up and took my hand and said, I must know you. (laughs) They now share five young children. Uh, And the kids are often on her Instagram account. Okay, so just a few days ago, some Twitter user tweeted, you have to admire Hilaria Baldwin's commitment to her decade-long grift where she impersonates a Spanish person. And this documented several instances of Hilaria speaking with a Spanish accent and seemingly claiming heritage, despite, wait for it, having spent most of her childhood in Massachusetts with seemingly non-Spanish parents. Now, I've watched some of these clips. She goes on Good Morning America, and there's no question that she is speaking with a bit of a Spanish accent. And um, in this GMA interview, and then she was on the Today Show, and she was struggling to recall how you say, what is the English word for cucumber? So she is, you know, uh, Spanish heritage, and her name is Hilaria, and she doesn't know cucumber. Uh, But uh, I guess the kind of inevitable way to say this is all BS. It's all BS. She grew up in Massachusetts. Okay, well, what about her parents? Maybe she has a, a, you know, okay. Her mother grew up in Springfield, Mass., according to news reports from 2017. Now, does that mean there aren't other relatives who ultimately come from Spain? Doesn't mean that at all. So, so Hilaria went on her Instagram, I guess, and here's what she said. I've seen Chandra online questioning my identity and culture. This is something I take very seriously. And for those who are asking, I'll reiterate my story, as I've done many times before. I was born in Boston and grew up spending time with my family between Massachusetts and Spain. But who exactly lived in Spain? My parents and sibling live in Spain, and I chose to live here in the USA. Okay, well, this doesn't quite parse because 
Mom's from Massachusetts. We celebrate both cultures in our home. Alec and I are raising our children bilingual, just as I was raised. This is very important to me. I understand that my story is a little bit different, but it is mine, and I'm very proud of it. And by the way, on one of her podcasts this year, reportedly, Hilaria said she moved to the U.S. when she was 19 years old to go to NYU, except that she grew up in Boston. So, I don't know, you know, the tabloids are having a field day with this, the prestige newspapers are having a field day with this, television, the internet are all having a field day with this. Um, You know, if it was just like a little white lie or two, I would say, you know, well, I pick on this poor woman, but, you know, sounds like she has kind of invented a fake persona. And if you have some extra time, you're not working, you know, look up a couple of these clips where she speaks on these morning shows in that accent, and you decide for yourself. Whether she's, uh, you know, I mean, I what, what would what would Alec Baldwin's President Trump have to say about this? You know, would he would he say it was a hoax? Would he say it's it's a huge story? I don't know. Alec's been keeping a low profile, uh, but this, finally we get something at the end of the year to end on a little bit of a lighter note, given how tough this year has been. And with that, uh, I was off yesterday. Hope you've been having a good week. I'll be back here tomorrow. You might consider subscribing on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts. You can get it at Amazon Music, Spotify, on your Amazon device. You name it. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.